0: Well, go ahead and be opening and making your way to 1 Peter. 1 Peter. It was so good to have, uh, let's see, Tim's not here this morning. Tim Alvasso last week and uh, open up God's word and the sayings of Christ from the cross. But this morning, we turn back to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Uh, 13 through 17. What we introduced a couple of weeks ago, we'll look at again today. And then uh, finally, one more time next Next week, in this important section of scripture. And even with that, we're only sketching the surface. I want to begin, however, introducing our message this morning uh, by reminding us, or at least connecting us all with events that we've, I doubt, if not all of us, many of us have seen all or in part this week, namely with the Senate confirmation hearings of Judge Kavanaugh, or Judge Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. And it's been really amazing to watch how these things have played out before us. And it's been a, a very clear picture to us of what we already know, but sometimes it comes before our eyes in a more striking manner, of the condition of our current political system, the condition of our government, the nature of how things are going to be tried and assumed and presented within our political culture, within our civil civil structure. And one of the most amazing things that has come out of this, without without taking aside, is the mere fact that a man is on trial with evidence that amounts to this. We believe. We believe. At the end of the day, outside of everything else that has been presented, the statement of some of our civil leaders as to the guilt of a man is this. And I quote, We believe Dr. Ford. That now is the new criteria of evidence and the new criteria of guilt, even in spite of evidence. In fact, this kind of climate is troubling, deeply troubling to many of us. When an accusation needs nothing more than belief in spite of evidence to bear the full force of guilt against an individual, that is a dangerous culture to be in. That is a dangerous precedent to set. The issue then is not presumption of guilt by reason and evidence, but guilt because it conforms to one's own agenda and party spirit. And that, in fact, has been what we've seen witnessed before our eyes at a level that I don't think has been seen, uh, according to those older (laughs) in the history of their lifetime, certainly in our generation. And yet, this is nothing new. Some of these things, as we see our current politics worked out before us, is shocking. Uh, It is to me, anyway. And to see how brass and uh, it is. But it's consistent with history. And it's consistent with the kind of charges that have been levied against believers living within this fallen world. And under various government systems throughout the history of the church. You could say throughout the history of God's people. But particularly throughout the history of the church. We need look no further than Jesus himself. Who was continually charged with sedition and crimes that he was innocent of. Charged of them for no other reason than it conformed to the desires and the power-hungry desires of those who sought to disthrone him, as it were, from his influence. So, for example, in Mark chapter 11, they said, Jesus says this. What shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace. who call out to other children and say, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of sinners, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. And of course the false charges against him of sedition... Against Rome, against the nation of Israel, that ultimately was the human reasons for his being put to death. Reasons that we would remind you, I would remind you, that even the one who executed that sentence, Pontius Pilate, governor of Judea at the time, was aware of his innocence. That judgment was a means of self-protection for him politically. So these kind of things are not new. And it's not new against the kind of charges that have come against Christians and God's people throughout the history of the church. They were very early on said to be haters of the human race because they did not worship publicly the gods and perform in those kind of ceremonies as was culturally appropriate at the time. And that's part of the reason, and actually that statement is made in an explanation of why the masses of the Roman Empire so easily sided with Nero and his blaming the Christians for the burning of Rome and then all of the atrocities that flowed out of that accusation. It is because they had already been branded as haters, as those who are guilty of the utmost horrible kind of crimes against humanity. For example, one makes this note. A Greek romance written by a certain Lolanius, recently discovered on a 2nd century papyrus from Cologne. So in other words, it's from the 2nd century AD. The papyrus describes an elaborate rite of initiation which included the ritual murder of a young boy, the removal of the victim's heart, an oath of eating the heart and drinking the blood, and sexual intercourse. The sacrificial murder is described as follows. And so this is from the document found. At this moment, another naked man arrived. This is, by the way, a description of what was being charged against Christians. At this moment, another naked man arrived with a purple belt around his loins. He threw at the boy's body the boy's body on its back, stuck it, opened it, removed the heart, and placed it over the fire. Then he took the roasted heart off the fire and cut it into halves. He sprinkled it with barley and drenched it with oil. When it was sufficiently prepared, he distributed portions of it to the... Initiates, And when they were holding them in their hands, he made them swear by an oath that the blood of the heart not to leave in the lurch nor to betray, even if they would be arrested or if they would be tortured or if their eyes would be put or dug out. So that was a charge against Christians. Another example, and I'll give you just one more, is this. And this comes from an early Christian apologist who's uh, directing a defense against this kind of charge that was made ...against Christians at the time... ...and this was the charge that he's writing against. They claimed that during their gatherings and their feast... ...a young baby is covered over with flour... ...the object being to deceive the unwary. It is then served before the person to be admitted into the rites. The recruit is urged to inflict blows onto it. They appear to be harmless because of the covering of flour... Thus, the baby is killed with wounds that remain unseen and concealed. It is the blood of this infant. I shudder to mention it. It is this blood that they lick with thirsty lips. These are the limbs they distribute eagerly. This is the victim by which they seal their covenant. And so on. Now, it is true there were some fringe groups early on in Christianity who did some horrible things, but these are the kind of charges that were brought against the mass of Christianity as a whole perverting certain descriptions such as the feast that they held in the Lord's Supper that eat my flesh and drink my blood. And then it was distorted and twisted into the most grotesque kind of accusations against the Christian church. One of the earliest documents that we have historically uh, talking about the Christians within the Roman Empire comes from the 2nd century. I've, I think I have mentioned parts of this to you before. By a man named, by, uh, by the name of Pliny, he was the governor of Bithynia, Bithynia, by the way, which is one of the cities that Peter is writing to you in First Peter. Of course, this is a later... But he wrote in a letter in 112 A.D. in which he sought advice from the then Emperor Trajan on to what to do with these Christians that he kept hearing about. And having heard of some of the charges against them, he decided to investigate. What are these charges? Are these things true? If they are true, they indeed need to be tortured. They need to be eliminated from the Roman Empire. They're a scourge on society. But having investigated, he found this. And this is from his letter. To Trajan, Pliny's letter to Trajan. They declared that the sum total of their guilt or error amounted to no more than this, that they met regularly before dawn on a fixed day to chant verses alternately among themselves in honor of Christ as if to a God, and also to bind themselves by oath, not for any criminal purpose, but to abstain from theft, robbery, and adultery, to commit no breach of trust, and not to deny a deposit when called upon to restore it. After this ceremony, it has been handed down by their custom to disperse and reassemble later to take food of an ordinary and harmless kind. So he heard these accusations, he investigated them, and what he found was what I just read. To this letter, the Emperor Trajan, and he's writing this letter because he's not really sure what to do with him. To this letter, of which that was only a portion. Trajan, the Emperor, replied, and I would note with a wisdom that we should heed today... That you observed... This is Trajan writing to Pliny. You observed proper procedure, my dear Pliny, in sifting the cases of those who had been denounced to you as Christians. For it is not possible to lay down any general rule to serve as a kind of fixed standard. They are not to be sought out. If they are denounced and proven guilty, they are to be punished with this reservation. That whoever denies that he is a Christian and really proves it, that is, by worshiping our gods even though he was under suspicion in the past, shall obtain pardon through repentance. But anonymously posted accusations ought to have no place in any prosecution. For this is both a dangerous kind of precedent and out of keeping with the spirit of our age. So he wisely counsels him that they aren't to be shouted out. But if any is brought before him, they have the chance to repent by sacrificing to the Roman gods, proving that they aren't a Christian. Because even these pagan rulers knew that a genuine Christian would never do that, would never turn their back on their Christ, their Lord, whom they worshipped. Now, why is all this important and how does it connect here? Well, as I mentioned earlier, even that historical example of the kind of accusations that were levied against Christians were taking, was taking place in the very vicinity, in the very city to which Peter is writing and where these recipients of the letter are living. It's the kind of things, even at the time, that they were enduring in a culture that was hostile to the truth. Now we've already looked at some examples of this, but we've covered recently in verse 12 of chapter 2. He says that keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers. What kind of evildoers? Well, those that would eat children and make human sacrifices and be involved in the most grotesque kind of immorality, some of which I didn't read because it's inappropriate Here. That kind of being spoken against as evil doers. He says later, You do what is right in verse 15 so that you might silence the ignorance of foolish men. Silence the ignorance of foolish men. Do good. Do good. Even among a culture that so disdains you and maligns you as with false charges... Under a governmental system that while showing some integrity in trying to work out justice, nonetheless oppresses at the same time putting some to death who would not conform to the political authority and dictates of the time. In that case, it was by sacrificing, making a sacrifice to the emperor. Which, by the way, was as much political as anything. It was simply to show that you were not going to be seditious or rebellious towards Political authority. In that case the authority of Caesar. Indeed. The evidence. The, uh, the Roman Empire eventually acknowledged. And was influenced in part. By Christianity. Not through revolution. But through the teaching and the lives of Christians. Bearing Christ's cross. Suffering the persecution that came from government. And living lives that gave credit to that message. So. The mandate. To them and to us was not to confront these kind of charges by reason of violence but rather by reason of truth and exemplary lives reason of truth and exemplary lives and again so this is the type of government in which Jesus himself set the example and to which we are called to live now as I mentioned before we're going to spend a few weeks on this uh, this week and next week and that should be it because of its importance, because of the massive implications that the teaching that Peter's here laying before us has, at least in terms of its principle, on all of our lives. We live, every one of us, every person on the face of this planet, within some kind of civic institution, some kind of political system, good or bad. And so these truths deal with the formation of our own nation, of wars that we enter into. Of political involvement. The relationship of the Christian to human authority within the kingdom of God. Our own political system and political involvement. And ultimately to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what I intend to do this morning is simply to lay out, walk through this passage generally and lay out the principles. And then next week we'll swing back around and look at some specific questions and apply it to some of the specific issues in relation to our Interaction with government, government authority, and politics as servants of the kingdom of God. The main idea for this morning is this, that God establishes and uses civil authority to govern men as the, and as the means and the context of serving the gospel. God establishes and he uses civil authority as a means of governing men... And establishing a context for the gospel. For the gospel. Let me read our passage. And I'm going to begin in verse 11 and then go down to verse 17. And then we'll begin walking through it. Verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers... They may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men, act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil but use it as bondslaves or slaves of God honor all people love the brethren fear God and honor the king now as i noted when we looked back at verse at verse 11 this is a transition in the letter of first peter he's transitioning to establishing the doctrine or a theology of our hope in christ our future anticipation of the return of Christ and the establishment of his kingdom. And now in verses 11 through 12 of chapter 2, he's making this transition. And he's going to be more specific in how then are we to live within this world, even among those who persecute us? How are we to glorify God and to live out, as it were, our theology of hope? And he began in verse 11 by saying that we do that by recognizing our position, who we are in Christ as beloved, who we are in this world as aliens and strangers, and who we are to be as those who are marked by holy lives. And so he addresses that uh, in the statement, I had to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul through the holiness of your lives. This inner battle with sin in which we seek to put to death sin and to put on righteous behavior eventuates in a life that is marked by excellent behavior, he says in verse 12. and so that that is lived out among the Gentiles, among the unbelieving, So that the gospel would be adorned. The gospel would be affirmed. And that through the testimony of both their lives and the message. Some would even believe. And as he says at the end of verse 12. Glorify God on the day of visitation. Which is a reference there to those who came to understand the truth of the God these Christians were serving. The truth about Christ. And so give God glory on his return. Peter then begins his explanation in verse 13 of how to keep this behavior excellent with the command to submit. The command to submit. And again, as we noted, this command of submission is essential to the gospel call. We submit ourselves to Christ. We submit ourselves to his lordship. We submit ourselves to his commandments. We submit ourselves to his providence and authority in our life, even when it includes suffering. We submit ourselves in human relationships according to the design and the structure of God. So we, as citizens of a nation, submit to rulers. As servants, we submit to masters. As wives, we submit to husbands. As Christians, we submit to one another. As children, submit to their parents. In other words, there is a structure of authority and submission that God has built into humanity... By which he maintains order and he is glorified. So submission, while offensive to us in terms of our fallenness, is essential to our understanding of the gospel and of spiritual life. And so that's how he begins. Submit. Submit. That's the character not only here of government, but that's the character of you as a Christian. But he gets specific here. He says in verse 13, Submit yourself for the lord's sake to every human institution and notice first here and if this is under the first point that god establishes and uses human authority but notice under this first point that this is a comprehensive statement to every human institution this is not qualified by the human institutions you agree with the parts of that human assistant institution that you affirm as legitimate Or the parts that you like. It is a straightforward command that establishes submission to human authority as the fundamental disposition of a regenerate, spirit indwelled, repentant believer within the culture that God has placed us. It's to mark our character in this world. Now, he says here to every human institution. I'm going to mention this because some of you may have different translations. If you were to take it literally, just just you know, point for point, it would be human creature or human creation. Uh, it would be the idea there. The word translated human institution, is that's how it's most often translated as creation or creature. That's what the word means. He says here to every human creature, every human creation would be more literally. What exactly does that mean? Well, the New American Standard and the ESV have human institution. If you have an older version, such as the King James Bible, it's going to say to every human ordinance. And if some of you have the Holman Christian Standard Bible, it'll say to human authority. All of those are trying to capture the idea. I would side with the New American Standard and ESV as translating this as human institution. Particularly because of how he immediately qualifies this with officers of that government system, a king, and to his governors, those sent by him. However, why does Paul not say that? There is language within the Greek to to say that. Why doesn't he say that? Why does he say human creatures or human creation? And I think the, the best explanation for that is this... Because by saying human creatures, by saying submit to human creatures and then qualifying that as kings and governors, his intention is, or why Peter says that, his intention is to acknowledge that though these are human rulers and human leaders, they are yet created beings and under the authority of God. They are not ultimate. God is ultimate. These are human creatures and what is... Created by them are human creations. And that is really to combat a tendency among some to elevate those in politics to a divine status or to a status higher than is a proper station as a created being of God, as a creature of God. But the broader principle here is this, of human authority, human authority. And again, as I mentioned, that's what the Holman Christian Standard Bible is trying to catch up or to present The exact form of political system in which that authority is structured is not mentioned. So the principle is stated wisely by the writer of Scripture here, Peter, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, to find application in every political context. That's the idea. It's a general principle applied to them, applied to us, applied to God's people throughout the history of the church. So it implies to those who live within the system of a monarchy, a republic, communism, socialism, totalitarianism, under a dictator, whether the government is good or bad. Now, it's important to stop here then, I I think, to be helpful and ask a bigger question, kind of a broader, more fundamental question. And that is this. Is government, is every human institution here defined as a human creation, or a human creature, is that a result of the fall? Is is government inherently evil? Or is government inherently used for evil? Or is government a necessary part of God's creation? God's creation. Let me just spend a few moments on this, because I, I think this is helpful To set for us a paradigm, a context to understand not only Peter's command here, but uh, all of what scripture has to say on this. First, government in its broadest sense is a part of the creation mandate to rule over creation. It's a part of the creation mandate to rule over creation. And let me make two just points on that. Even though that command to rule over the face of the earth was given to Adam and Eve before there were any others. So it was only Adam and it was only Eve. There were two people. That's hard enough uh, to govern that with two people. But it was given to them with the understanding that the earth would be populated and there would be masses of, of people eventually to whom that command would apply. Now, by implication, this would have then necessitated some form of human structures to exercise this care and rule over all that God had made. So it's at least implied there in that initial command to Adam and Eve. Secondly, it's implied in the fact that God established the relationship of authority and submission before the fall. As a matter of fact, being made in the image of God, God established relationships of authority and submission In order to construct a organized and stable society and culture and peoples. In other words, where there's not some kind of structure of authority and submission, there's not some kind of leadership, there is chaos. There is chaos. And this idea of authority and submission is not, of course, one of value. This is not a rabbit trail. But it is... Part of being made in the image of God and is reflected within the divine relationships themselves of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Even within the persons of the Godhead, how they relate to one another, there is the demonstration of authority and submissive uh, submission. And so it is a reflection of order. It is a reflection of order. And we see that again right at the very beginning of the establishment of society. There is authority of submission in the relationship of God to man. There is authority and submission in the relationship of the man to the woman. And there is authority and submission in the relationship of children to their parents. That's why, just as a footnote here, the family the family is foundational to any stable society. You attack the family, there goes the culture and the nation. It will crumble Now, here's a helpful distinction, however, to make when we put this into the wider context, context, including the fall. And it's made by one author, Robert Culver. He says this, and I think it's helpful, I'm borrowing from him, that we view government as organizational. In other words, as simply a, a construct of the social organization of men. And then there's another kind of government that comes about after the fall, and that's called Coercive—we could call it coercive civil government. In every word, other words, it's a kind of governing of men that includes the threat of punishment. That includes the authority and the threat of punishment. Now, organizational government is the natural social organization of society in life lived under God's authority to fulfill His mandate to rule over the earth. Before the entrance of sin, this would have been joyful. This would have promoted human flourishing. This would have been marked by happiness. This would have been marked by submission to the ultimate authority of God and to his glory. One author describes what that might look like this way. I thought it was helpful. If man were today, such as mankind were then, the social organi- then being before the fall, the social organization of men would be completely effective for beauty, for truth, happiness, fulfillment freedom and all other possible good social organization would not need to be coercive in other words forced for men would respond joyfully to such organization without constraint could you imagine that that actually connects then right what is the summation of the law to love God with all your heart soul strength and mind and to love your neighbor as yourself if you did that perfectly you wouldn't need the mosaic law you wouldn't need the ten commandments you wouldn't need all of those instructions why because you'd be doing them, because you'd be acting out of love. You'd be acting out of love. However, sin did enter into the world and create conditions in which another kind of government would be needed. And if, if this title isn't too much, coercive civil government. In other words, a kind of government that would need the force and the threat of the power of punishment or the sword. A government that would yield power and authority to punish and even to put to death. Now, the divine sanctioning of this government, the divine establishment of this government government is laid down in principle form, actually immediately following the flood. Noah's family was brought through the flood. The waters receded. The ark landed. God gave the rainbow. And then he gave this instruction. And this is in Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9 says this, in verse 4, Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast. I will require it. And here. And from every man whom every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. Now I want you to note here that there's no direct command for civil government. But it establishes the biblical foundation. A biblical foundation for structures among men that would wield the authority to take human life. To take human life for the crime of taking another life. Let me just give you very quickly four principles for civil government that come out of this. Four principles of civil government. And again, I'm going to borrow these from Culver. The first is this. Civil government is established by God for the protection and the flourishing of man. The context of this command is so that they might multiply, live on the earth, and flourish. And not live in a society in which there would be no consequences for crime, even for such a crime as murder. So there is, within this command, the heart of God to see man flourish even under the conditions of the fall. Commenting on this passage, I think Calvin said this, It is no common proof of God's love toward us that He undertakes the defense of our lives and declares that He will be the avenger of our death. In other words, the fact that God would place this protection there is showing a concern for our protection, for our flourishing. Number two, the establishment of authority, of the authority of civil government does not originate in man, but God's sovereignty. In other words, God is the one who is establishing this principle that you have the authority to take the life of another who takes the life of man, who takes the life of one who was created in my image? He alone has the right to grant this power to humanity and to human institutions. In other words, that right is not a matter of a human mandate. It is a matter of God's mandate. It's so number three, so there's civil governments for the protection and flourishing of man. It has authority that originates in God's sovereignty, not in man. And notice next that civil government has a moral basis of mutual obligation to one another. An obligation to love and to protect. Look at how he defines this in verse 6. He says, by man his blood shall be... Uh, excuse me, in verse 5. He says, and from every man, from every man's brother, I will acquire, require the life of man. There even in those words, showing that there is, based on the unity of humanity, of mankind a moral responsibility that we have to one another to protect one another, to care for one another. It's there. And number fourth, to go quickly, civil government functions best only with a proper religious foundation. Notice again what he says in verse 6. By man his blood shall be shed. Why? For in the image of God he made man. Why? Why is man to be protected? Why is there a brotherly commitment and responsibility to one another? Why should man be put in a context where they can flourish? Because man is made in the image of God. That's why. Because man is made in the image of God. The governments furthest removed from a proper view of God tend to be the most oppressive to men. Tend to be the most oppressive to men. Now a corollary passage to this in terms of the establishment of government is in Romans 13 one you're more familiar with. I'm just going to mention it. Foundational. Romans 13 says this Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. ...who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection... ...not only because of wrath... ...but also for conscience' sake. And can stop there. But also for conscience' sake. In other words, again... ...civil authority, as was established in Genesis 9... ...finds, it ultimate, uh, finds its ultimate source in God's command and authority. God is the one... Who grants any authority to any human institution, to any human leader, to any human ruler of men. As a matter of fact, that is the very basis, that is the very principle that Daniel, when he was captive in a foreign land, under a foreign government, a godless government, under a godless king, in whose government he served made known to that king these words. This is Daniel to King Nebuchadnezzar. That God has ultimate authority and he, quote, bestows it on whomever he wishes. Nebuchadnezzar, you're king because God has raised you up as king. Nebuchadnezzar, you are king and God can remove your kingdom as he did. He can remove your authority as he did for a period of time. In other words, God is the one who is sovereign over that. He said earlier in chapter two, verse twenty, Daniel's now responding to in gratitude to God who gave him an answer to his prayer. He says this, let the Daniel speaking, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs, he removes kings and he establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what we requested of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. In verse 47, we read it earlier after Daniel revealed the vision to the meaning of the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar said, surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of lords and a revealer of mysteries. In other words, God is the one who's running the show. God is the one who's determining who has power, who doesn't have power. God is the one who sits on the throne and whose authority is under no real threat by men. As a matter of fact, as I mentioned, when God did remove authority and glory from Nebuchadnezzar for a while and made him go out in the fields and his nails grow long and his hair grow long and get wet by nature and look like a fool, he who was so glorious, when God restores him, Nebuchadnezzar has these words. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? In other words, God reigns. God is the one who establishes authority and he bestows it on whomever he wishes. There is no authority but that which comes from God. And I would remind you again that this authority that is being acknowledged by Daniel and by Nebuchadnezzar is an authority that was being used initially by that king to demand self-worship upon the pain of death. In other words, he was not a righteous ruler. He was not a good and benevolent potentate. He was vain and self-glorious and violent. He was wicked He was one who was made to see that he was under the authority, however, of God. And he has that authority by God's decision. Note next then from Romans 13, that God has entrusted the power and authority to establish laws, set consequences, collect taxes, and go to war to government. Again, that is not man's authority. It does not originate with man. It originates with God. God has established that. And just a third general point. Our obedience to God then is directly reflected in our attitude and obedience to civil authority. Why? Because God is the one who ordained it and established it. He ordained it and established it. Now we're going to talk about the... The complexities of that a little more next week, but we have to understand with that beginning foundation whoever is in power is in power because the Almighty Creator of the universe and the Lord has determined that they would be in power, whether good or bad. God has determined that for His own sovereign purposes. So, God, that's another exercises his sovereignty, his providence over the nations and rulers which exist by his command under his rule and for his purposes. That's a biblical view of government. A biblical view of government. Now back in First Peter then he says this. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. For the Lord's sake. Our submission is for the Lord's sake. The attitude of obedience to a nation's laws and honor to its leaders is based not on the worthiness of the government or of the leader, but of the worthiness of God to be obeyed. The authority of God who established the authority of that government and who gave us commands on how we are to live under it. Okay, now that principle we mentioned a couple weeks ago is important in all of the relationships. A servant isn't obedient to his master because the master is worthy. In fact, he may be unworthy and treat him unrighteously. But it is the worthiness of Christ whom that servant serves that motivates his obedience and submission to his master. It is not that every husband is worthy to be followed by a Christian wife. In fact, they may not be. They may be disobedient to the word. They may be an unbeliever. It's not the worthiness of the husband that is the motivation of obedience. It is the worthiness of Christ who commands it. And so it goes down the line. So it is for the Lord's sake. Now, again, I will mention this more later, but that doesn't mean absolute obedience without question. The obedience and submission that we offer to authorities, as has already been established, is really obedience to God and under His lordship. He'll make that point in verse 16. We do it as slaves of God. We're God's slaves, not the slave of that human leader. And not that government. So God's authority is ultimate and we obey Him. So whenever human authority conflicts with God's authority, it's God whom we obey and suffer whatever consequences God has ordained for us to suffer. And He will give us the grace to do that. But the foundational principle is this. That we are to have an attitude in relationship to human authorities that is marked by submission to its laws and honor to its leaders. This note just lastly, and I'm going to state this briefly. And we'll... uh, God uses civil authority to serve the gospel. God uses civil authority. So civil authority, human authority, human institutions finds its origin in God's mandate. It finds its origin in God's own authority. Our command is to submit to it as something that God has established for His honor and for His glory and our well-being. But God also uses civil authority to serve the gospel. Look at verse 14. He says this. We're we to submit to the king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Or the praise of those who do good. Call this. Those who do good. Government, even in its corrupt form, is still generally used by God to restrain evil. Even in its corrupt form, government is Used by God generally to restrain evil. One possible statement uh, regarding that directly is actually, you don't have to turn there, but it's in 1 Timothy. 1. He says this, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Verse 9. Realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Now some see in that statement law because it doesn't have an article there that That he's referring to law generally in cultural and humanity. Probably what Paul has in mind here is the Mosaic law. But it's not to say that even though that is primary in his mind, I would hold that he doesn't have an implication, he doesn't have also in his mind the fact that law as a concept, so the law within the mosaic structure as well as the law within a human structure, has in both contexts as its design the restraint of evil. Do not commit murder, do not covet, do not commit adultery, and so on and so forth. And so it is with the laws of men. There is a general sense in which the laws of human government and the establishment of human government are for the restraint of evil. For the restraint of evil. Now, human government is not going to perfectly reflect God's righteousness. However, because of the image of God in man and the conscience, there is a general moral basis to government that restrains an unopposed, and emphasize that, an unopposed flourishing of evil. In other words, even in, even in a godless kind of government, and we could think of something like communism particularly in its, its truest form, and others, even within that system, even as bad as that system is, it does act at some level as a restraint of unrestrained exercise of evil within that culture through the fear of punishment, through the fear of punishment. This is why Paul can state in verse Romans 13, and what Peter says here, is that government is not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. And that marks then the ability of even human institutions to distinguish between the true, uh, the two in general. And we see many examples of this. If you went back into ancient Near East, some of you are familiar with, you have what is called the Babylonian Code. It is a code of conduct that... ...has many righteous aspects to it. It's far cry from the Mosaic legislation... ...but it is nonetheless a reflection of even among human beings... ...of a sense of justice and a sense of rightness... ...even including ideas of generosity. The moral teaching of ancient Greek philosophers... ...the general course of governments throughout history... ...are all examples of this. Now while government can become the means of persecution... ...and even sanctioning what is evil... For example, the persecution of Christians, the sanctioning of laws that are unrighteous and godless, even in our own country, the sanctioning of laws that would kill human life in the womb, the establishment of laws even argued for with energy that would allow human life to be taken when it is weak and when it is old or at its own desire, or the kind of laws that sanction laziness and a lack of responsibility and so on and so forth the kind of laws that would sanction and try to force on everybody within a culture the agenda the immoral agenda of the homosexual movement and rob and steal or attempt to god's own design of marriage to pervert it into something that it is not those are all laws in our own country they are unrighteous they are godless they are an offense to God. So that those exist and yet right alongside that are laws that uphold God's will and God's righteousness and actually act as protections for the gospel. So those things are true. Again, it's not going to be perfect in this world, but it has both functions. Human government acts, it functions as a protection for the gospel and for God's people. And at the same time, that same government can be used to persecute. God's people. We see examples of this. Let me just give you a few. One good example of both sides of this is Paul and his journey to Rome. Now, there's many examples that could be given from his life, but after being rescued from a Jewish mob by Roman soldiers, you remember the Jewish mob wanted to come and kill him. Roman centurion sees that he goes down, he breaks up the ruckus. And he rescues Paul, essentially, he pulls him out of there, eventually gives him a chance to make his own defense before the Jews, and then rescues him again when they sought, once again, to turn on him. And Paul was repeatedly protected, get this, from the authority of the Roman government to wield the sword. He was protected by that authority. He was enclosed, as it were, by that authority at this time. To protect him from those who would do him harm. And would have put him to death. Even Paul's appeal to Caesar. Who at that time was the. He didn't start out that way. But ended up that way. As the crazy and maniacal Nero. Some of you are familiar with. Even then. his appeal to Caesar. Was an appeal to civil authority. For his protection. For his protection. You see how this works out. Uh. In fact, it was Paul's imprisonment while waiting to stand before Caesar that provided him protection and the opportunity to bear witness to Christ for a full two years unthreatened. The book of Acts ends this way, Paul's first Roman imprisonment. He says he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters. This is while he was in Rome under arrest. He was in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. So that same authority that had put, that had put James to death, that same authority that had unrighteously put Christ to death, though they knew he was innocent of the charge, that same authority that would ultimately be the death of the apostle Paul beheaded by the same emperor to whom he appealed to, the emperor Nero, was also the same government that God used to protect him and give him an unthreatened opportunity to speak of the kingdom of God for two full years while under Roman protection. So this is how God uses it. He uses government for good as a restraint of sin, even in an unrighteous environment and context. Even in regimes oppressive, regimes oppressive to Christianity now. The gospel has flourished. Even though it comes at the cost of suffering for some. We may think of China. Even governments and nations that rise and fall under the hand of God. He uses sometimes those nations to fulfill his purpose of judgment. I wish we could turn there. Isaiah 10. You can read it. Or restoration. Cyrus I have called. He is my shepherd. He is my servant. Cyrus was a godless man. And yet... He is, by God's words, his servant who will achieve his purposes by releasing this people from bondage, bringing them back, even supporting them financially, and in other means, into their own land so that they could build the temple and once again flourish. God did that. God used a nation to judge his people and take them to captivity. God raised up another king to release his people and bring them back into their own land. God did that. All authority is from him. And the ultimate purpose of this is stated actually in Acts 17. I don't have to turn around. But in Paul's statement to the Greeks, he says this. He says, verse 25, he's not served by human hands as though he needed anything. He himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made, in verse 26, from one man, Adam... Every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their inhabitation. In other words, if you read human history, if you go through the history books, if you look at the map, and if you trace how those maps continually change throughout the history of man, what you are seeing is the sovereign plan of God for nations. That's what we're witnessing God's purpose for this earth. We can study human events, but behind each of those events is the sovereign purpose of God. Why? He says it in verse 27. That they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live, and move, and exist. So humanity, under the rule of governments, nations that rise and fall, political systems that change... Are all under the sovereign hand of God, ultimately, that men would seek him. And as I noted, our government is not without its own failings and is currently in a moral slide that will likely eventuate in the gradual increase of persecution of Christians. It's the likely end of it. When, where, how much, what, who knows. Yet this government has been established by God and used for the advancement of the gospel in amazing ways. Through the protection of God through our nation, which is not a righteous nation. Though it's usually on the side that's the better side. It's been used to amass immense wealth, which has been both for its blessing and its cursing. The blessing of the church. The resources. Why are we as an American church able to send out resources to other countries? Because of the blessings we've received here. In America, under this system. Of learning, why are seminaries and universities to be established in the western world? Because of the influence of the gospel. And so here. And the church has been both strengthened and weakened by this. Even with the rise of morality and laws that conflict with righteousness, the church is still protected and defended against unrestrained persecution of laws through civil authority. You can think of Chick-fil-A. Who had some sort of political and legal basis to argue not having to use a pill that could cause abortion. We can think of uh, many other examples. Last night we watched God's Not Dead. At the end of that, whether you like that movie or not, Uh, we do. But at the end of it, there's a whole list that goes on and on and on and on of these cases that inspired the movie. The cases against free speech. Cases against the free exercise of religion and so on and so forth. So in one sense, we live in a culture and a government not unlike in in broadest terms, theirs, that both offer protection for the church, protection for God's people, and at the same time are a means of their persecution at another time. So it's, it's a messy world under the fall. But what we need to understand is that God has established it. And we honor him as he says, and I'm ending with this, with this. We honor him by doing what is right within that system, not being charged of rebellion, of revolution, of sedition, of any evil thing. We act as free men and here the freedom. It could be seen as freedom in terms of legal status, but the best way and the most common way is freedom in terms of our freedom in Christ under the lordship of Christ and not beholden ultimately to any human authority. He says don't use that kind of freedom as a means of sin and of evil. Rather, use your freedom as a means of living out a righteous life as a slave of God. That ultimately will demonstrate itself in verse 17 that we give honor to all people. We honor them. We obey those who have the authority to command obedience. We honor all people as those who are made in the image of God and to whom we owe a debt of honor and dignity and protection. And care. We honor all men. We love the brethren. Which takes priority. We fear God. And we honor the king. And that's how we are then to live. Under the government and the authority. That God established. And all of that. To the glory of God. Understanding that from him and through him. And to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Now. Now that's the principle basically there is no doubt some particular questions about how that fleshes out in a fallen world and that's what we'll look at next week and i'll try to cover them all then some specifically how does that relate to war how does that relate to civil disobedience how does that relate to the formation of our own nation was the american revolution righteous or was it unrighteous that's a big question how are we to think about those things in relation to God's establishment here? And so we'll talk about some of those things next week. But all of this submission is not going to make any sense and be, uh, be the motivation of our hearts or your hearts until there is first that submission to Christ as Lord because he's the one who commands it. So the bigger point here is do you live and do I live under the lordship of Jesus Christ? Do his commands define my direction and obedience in life and that will show up in how we follow his instructions here and in the other ways that he's directed us let me pray and then we'll close father thank you for your word help us to do these things which are impossible in our own strength everything in us when we are wrongly treated or when we see some of the laws that that we live under that we don't like and so forth. everything in us wants to justify rebellion wants to show our disdain and I've been guilty of that I think all of us at some point probably have we ask you for forgiveness conform us and shape us to be more like Christ and your servants to give honor to the king to live obediently within our legal system without undue complaint to acknowledge your goodness even in those things that are marked by failure and flaws and to live as obedient servants of our king who is the king of kings and lord of lords wherever you may place us and give us strength to be faithful whatever it may cost us and to this end we pray in your name Lord Jesus Amen